Halloween is supposed to be a night where you can dress up and eat candy until you're sick. We have always been told the horrors that could surround this coma-induced sugar-filled night, but where did these terrifying stories come from? It's not a shock that they stem from real-life occurrences. From bitter pixie sticks to mysteries revolving around the missing, this month we are talking about the real-life Halloween scary stories. Now it's time to unpack the story behind the mask. Let's talk about the people wearing their deadly disguises. Hey guys, and welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Lulu, and today is episode two of our Halloween month. In this episode, we are talking about the deadly disguises that people wear. So we are going to go into as much depth as we can on three separate cases of people who were wearing some sort of disguise on Halloween. Sorry about that. My son decided that he wanted to be part of the podcast today. It's kind of a hectic day in my house. I don't just have my two kids. I've got my niece as well. Um... Two of them are down for a nap, but obviously my son refuses to nap. Let's be honest though, are we shocked? Because I feel like that is like the case every single week. But anyways, let's go ahead and jump right into this week's case. This week we are going to start with the Scream Mask Murders. Now I was really excited about covering these cases, but I do want to quickly just remind you guys that these are smaller cases. A lot of them are unsolved and they are Halloween cases because that is the theme that we are going with. So the bad thing about unsolved cases is we don't have a ton of information to go off of. A lot of the times they are unsolved because there is not enough information and that is kind of the case with all of these masked ones. They all feel very short to me. But, you know, I really wanted to do masked Halloween murders because those were always things that I thought about as a kid of like, you don't really know who's coming up to your door, who is behind the mask. So that's why I really still want to cover these. And they might be smaller cases and they might, you know, not take as long to cover as some of our other cases. But that is the point with these cases that have so little information is to get that out there we're going to get these stories out there and then maybe somebody somewhere has some sort of information that they can bring up and maybe they'll get solved one day we're going to go ahead and jump into that first case now this first case is called the scream mask murders as you can probably guess the streets of new york are filled with crime all the time and i know that murder is obviously a crime, but it's not something that you would assume is going to happen every day, even in New York. Also, I'm so sorry. I swear, every time I click the record button, my son decides that he needs to be fussy. So, but anyways, New York had gone a whole week without any sort of murderous activity, without any shootings, any anything like that that could become murderous or murders in general. So that was pretty good. Then, on Halloween night, there was an uproar of shootings and murders. It started with Sean Rhodes. He was a 46-year-old male and was driving his Chrysler 
voyage down Wartman Avenue in East New York. At about 7.30 p.m., he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was shot at multiple times. He was quickly scooped up and rushed to Brookdale Hospital in an ambulance. This hospital was only located about a block from his home, and this is where they pronounced him dead. The gunman had fired at least five times towards him. And while they were doing the investigation, they had found a 9mm pistol in the vehicle. So they're unsure if this was a random shooting or if he was being chased or anything like that. But that was important to note. Or honestly, he could have just been carrying a gun. I know a lot of people that just carry 9mm. Then, just a little after this first incident, there was another shooting located in Queens. This time, I don't have a name, but a man was shot in his torso, and then another man was shot just an hour after that on Beach Channel Drive. Neither of these men were seriously injured with the shootings, and they did end up making a full recovery. So that's good. Then only 30 minutes after that second shooting, a young 19-year-old would be fatally shot in the head. Anthony Shavert was shot on East 31st Street. They quickly rushed him to Kings County Hospital, but due to where the bullet was located, the doctors were unable to save him. But with this shooting, we have a little more information. Anthony was recorded in being followed by five separate people before he was shot. One of them was actually wearing a scream mask. That is where this whole day and case and everything gets the name. They don't think, and I'll just put this in really quick, that all of these were done by the same person. But this was one incident where they could finally put a name to what was going on. The Scream Mask Martyrs, if that makes any sense. Um, it is recorded that there was a witness that saw these five people walk up behind Anthony and they shot him once in the head at close quarters. When he fell down, obviously dying, they proceeded to fill his body with five more shots just to make sure he was fully dead before they left. Then, only about another hour, at 11 p.m. at night, police officers got another call. They responded to a call that informed them that there were some shots that had been fired near some Castle Hill houses. They quickly ran there because of everything that had already been going on. They really didn't want any more people to die. And when they got there, they quickly discovered a man that fit the description of the one that was shooting at people. This obviously started a police chase and they both exchanged shots with one another as the police followed him through Castle Hill Avenue. They did end up shooting him down, and once they did, they discovered a 45 caliber gun at the scene of the first shooting to which they were responding to when they came across the shooter. Luckily, when they checked out the shootings and everybody around, nobody had gotten injured besides the gunmen. So unfortunately, they did have another death that night, but it was somebody who was attempting to harm others. So at least there's that. Then, finally, lastly, we get to 37-year-old Kevin Thompson. 
He was shot in the neck only 30 minutes later, so about 11.30 p.m. He was spending time at the park place when he was shot at. He was rushed to Brookdale Hospital quickly after, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. And this is where we wrap up the shootings and death that happened that Halloween night. They have never caught any of them except for the gunmen that they ended up shooting down and killing. And unfortunately, everybody else kind of got away. They have a feeling that it was all gang related and it was everybody in one gang for some reason decided to just shoot a bunch of people on Halloween night. They do know that it was different people at every shooting. So that's going to wrap it up for our first case today in this episode. Um, I just wanted to let everybody know that I had to record this in two separate settings. I had some audio difficulty happen and I tried my best to fix it. So if it sounds a little weird now, that's why. I didn't want to re-record the whole beginning that we just went through. So we're just going to leave it in. But yeah, that's why it might have a little bit of a different sound to it now. Just a heads up. But now we're going to go ahead and move into our second case. This is the Masked Madman. This is the case of Joseph Smith and Ronald DeLoach. They were both brothers and were spending October 31st of 2016 at home together. Joseph was 27 at the time and Ronald was 42. It was about 8.54 p.m. when somebody broke into their home. It was a single masked man who entered the residence and ended up fatally shooting both men. And it's important to note here that they were not alone in the house. The house actually had another one of their brothers in it and their mother as well. Joseph was actually alone in one of the rooms when the masked gunman entered. He shot at Joseph, and once those first shots were fired and heard, the older brother, Roland, ended up poking his head out of his bedroom door. Now, this is all coming from Spencer, that other brother that was in the house when this happened. So, either Spencer saw everything that had happened, or he was in the room with Roland. That is unclear. But... Once Roland looked outside of his bedroom to allegedly check on his mother once he heard those shots, that is when the masked gunman shot at him as well. He didn't even have time to fully open his bedroom door before he was shot and killed. Their mother ended up witnessing the whole thing. After the gunman had shot two of her sons, he pointed the gun at her. But luckily for her, he did not pull the trigger. And instead, he snuck out of the house and blended in with the other kids on the blocks and parents that were trick-or-treating. The family believed that the younger brother, Joseph, was the target, the one who got shot at first. But unfortunately, when Roland stuck his head out of the bedroom door, he roped himself into it. And that's what ended up getting him killed. They also believe that this gunman was local. They even thought he was from the same neighborhood. During the investigation as to who this masked gunman was, they had several different leads come up. But with every single lead they invested, they ended up coming up empty-handed. This obviously did not give family, friends, or the town any sort of closure and just gave them more stress thinking about the fact that a murderer was wandering through their streets. But they did have one person of interest come up. His name was Dante Lamar James. He was actually arrested only one day after the murders. 
because he was linked to the home invasion that had happened. He had a gun with an altered serial number that they were unsure if it was part of the homicide. This gun was found at the home of the murdered victims. Dante did admit to police that this was his gun, but they were unsure if this gun was the gun that killed the men and was left behind, or if it was another gun that was just there that Dante owned with an altered serial number. Obviously, this is suspicious. It was a gun left at a murder scene. Dante was a felon. And it had an altered serial number. They did end up booking Dante on charges for the ammunition he owned, owning a firearm, and two different marijuana charges. He ended up getting fitted with a tracking device once he was let out of jail, but he cut it off and ran away, which is also suspicious. Since Dante had disappeared, they moved on to another tip while they looked for him. This tip claimed that a couple was saw stopped in Stanford and they had been overheard arguing about the double homicide while they were shopping. Once they tracked the two down and questioned them, James, the man, claimed that Joseph had bought half a pound of marijuana on Halloween, on top of purchasing Dante's gun that was found at the scene of the crime. Police did find a bill of sale for the gun and ammunition with some of the marijuana. But I am unsure if James sold this gun to him and stole it from Dante, or if Dante sold this gun to him. But if Dante did sell this gun to him, why wouldn't he tell police in the first place? So that's already a very suspicious thing. There's a lot of suspicious stuff happening in this case. This, just like many of the other leads, led them to a dead end. Their biggest worry was finding Dante. They were pretty positive that Dante was involved in some way. They did finally find him in Bentleville. He was in a vehicle with three other passengers. They are all currently being charged with fleeing police because the police had tried to pull them over when they were speeding and they ran from them. They didn't even know it was Dante at first. This was just a routine traffic stop that quickly turned into a police chase. So at about 4.50 p.m., once Dante saw the blue and red lights flickering behind him, he hit the gas. This police pursuit ended in several car crashes. Dante had made a right on Bentleville and ended up smashing into a building that was located on the intersection. Even though he literally hit a building, he managed to continue to speed through the streets. He ended up losing control of the vehicle and crashed into a van, then followed through with crashing through a fence into a yard that was full of children toys. Luckily, the child was not outside at the time, so nobody got injured at least in that aspect. The car was still moving by the time all three of the suspects jumped out of it. Dante was trying to run on foot. At this point, they knew who he was and they ended up catching him shortly after the foot chase started. Obviously, 
they wanted to catch all three of them. They all three ran, so all three of them were guilty of at least something. But Dante was the number one suspect. They knew who he was, and they needed to get him. Which, luckily for them, wasn't that hard. Now, one of the other passengers, Charles McKinley Dutch Jr., who was 31 at the time, had fled the vehicle and tried to hide underneath a shed to evade police. They easily found him and booked him. The third was China Moon Chambers. She was 18 at the time, and she fled and ran into a nearby resident's home while the homeowner was still in the house. How terrifying would that be to be sitting watching TV and have a lady run into your home trying to hide from police and police following shortly after? Like, I feel like that's something out of a movie. That's insane to think about happening. Obviously, they caught her, and they booked her as well. Once all three were in custody, they decided to search the car. While searching the vehicle that was still in that yard, they found a bag of crack in the vehicle along with guns and a bottle of drugs. During this pursuit, the authorities also claimed that they had thrown out three different handguns while they attempted to flee from the authorities. I'm going to say it again straight up suspicious. All of the suspects were charged with burglary, trespassing, flight to avoid apprehension, possession of firearms without a license, drug possession, along with criminal mischief. Dante was also charged with fleeing from the police and causing accidents that involved property damage because he was the driver of the vehicle. The fleeing the police and the fight to avoid apprehension are two different charges. I guess I should have known that when I first started reading into it, but I guess I didn't, like, make that, like, connection. But fight to avoid apprehension was when they ran from the police. Fleeing the police was the police chase, just in case anybody didn't know that or hadn't made that connection. And that's kind of where this cold case ends. I know it literally felt like we were just getting into it and we were going to get a resolution, but we don't. This is all the information that I've got. I don't know any more about what happened after they got Dante. I'm sure they are still investigating it and investigating Dante. But as of right now, this is another unsolved cold case, as far as we know. Our last case is the hooded horror. This is a very heartbreaking case, and this is going to be about a child. So I'm just giving you a warning now. A seven-year-old should spend Halloween getting jump-scared and running around a corn maze, not getting shot at. On Halloween night in 1994, Las Vegas would be shaken up. Tony Bagley was only a second grader at Fitzgerald Elementary when he was out trick-or-treating with his family. He had his mother, Lachelle Cooper, an unnamed aunt, and his 10-year-old sister, Chanel Bagley, with him. It was only 6.15 p.m. when the family was out trick-or-treating. A man who was described as an African-American male who looked to be about 5'8", was wearing dark-colored jogging clothes with a hooded sweatshirt that was pulled over his head, ran up to the family, and unloaded several shots from a small handgun into them. These showers from the gun hit everyone somewhere. 
His older sister was hit in the stomach. This ended up injuring her liver and she had to have surgery to repair the damage the gun did and to remove a part of her liver that was too badly damaged to save. His mother got hit in the chest and his aunt was hit in the leg. Seven-year-old Tony was not as lucky as the rest. He was struck in the head. And after unloading the gun on the family, this hooded unknown man jumped into a vehicle that was parked and waiting for him. They drove off without their headlights so they couldn't be tracked and they disappeared that Halloween night. Quickly after the gunfire and the family was shot, they rushed everybody to the hospital. His whole family survived but Tony. As soon as they arrived at the hospital, they put him on life support, but he would later succumb to his injuries. This is heartbreaking. The fact that this family was out having a good time, like they should be, and a seven-year-old was taken away, just like that. And just like a trend on every single episode this week and last week's, this man is still unknown. This man has gotten away with attempting to murder a whole family and taking a seven-year-old away from us. Now, right off the bat, they had some ideas on who this man could have been. But they never had enough information to hold anybody accountable. They had some feelings that this shooting could have been related to some sort of drug deal that had gone bad. Or there is a possibility that somebody else in the family was a target who was not out with them that night. It is also interesting to note that... Tony's own father would be arrested years later because he murdered a man named Curtis Henry in Las Vegas in 1998. His father was also described as an angry, evil person by his wife. She would recall him talking to other people about the intent to kill his son over some unpaid debt that he had. Tony's father ended up getting charged and serving time for the murder that he was involved in. While he was serving time, they tried to question him about Tony's case, but he refuses to talk about anything. They also had a psychic come forward with some interesting leads. One of these leads told them that the gun was located in an abandoned building, and they were even able to inform the police of which building it was. But when the police looked, they were only met with some dust and no gun. These leads the psychic gave them ended up leading them nowhere. With no leads moving this case anywhere, Bob Stupak, who owned multiple casinos, put up a $100,000 reward for any information that could lead someone to being held accountable. But even with this mass amount of money up for grabs, Nobody came forward. And this is where Tony's case becomes freezing cold and it's never been able to move forwards. We still do not have any information on who killed Tony that night and who shot at his whole family. I wanted to touch back on one of the ideas on what had happened. I'm kind of gonna mix a couple of them, I guess. What if Tony's father was part of a gang? 
Because this does sound like another gang killing. I'm going to be honest with you guys. That's the first thing I got from this case when I looked into it. Is it sounded like a gang killing. So what if Tony's father was part of this gang and for some reason he owed the gang something? Whether that was money for drugs. Maybe he was supposed to do something he never did. Maybe he stole something. And what if he couldn't pay it back? And this is where his wife recalls him talking on the phone about killing his son. Maybe he put his family up, especially his son, for payment. Or maybe he was trying to convince them not to kill the family, just his son. There's a lot of ways this could have gone, that maybe he stole something and they said, we're going to kill your whole family unless you pay it back, and then he couldn't pay it back, and he said, please don't do that, maybe just my son. As terrible as that is to say, and that's why he wasn't out trick-or-treating that night. I'm not saying the whole family has to go out trick-or-treating with the kids, but when I was a kid, my whole family went out trick-or-treating. My mother and father came with us, not my mom and my aunt. With my kids, my husband wants to go trick-or-treating with us every year. So maybe that's just me talking about my childhood and everybody's childhood is different, but I feel like it's weird that the dad didn't come for some reason. And then you had this shooting, and now he's refusing to talk about it, and he ended up murdering somebody, which already says a lot about him. He didn't have a good side. So I wonder if the dad wasn't necessarily the shooter, but what if the dad was involved? What if the dad was driving the car that night? Because there was a second person who drove that vehicle. That car was ready for them, to pick them up and take them. What if the dad took somebody from this gang to the family and they tried to kill the whole family. There's a lot of things that we don't know, obviously, and a lot of this is circumstantial. That, to me, is what feels like it could have happened. And we obviously will not know until we find out what happened to Tony. And I really hope they did some investigation just to make sure that the dad was not part of a gang. But that's the bad thing, too, and why nobody would have came forward for that $100,000 is... If you're part of a gang, it's very hush-hush. And if this was a gang kill, and the only people that knew what happened were part of this gang, nobody's going to come forwards. I know these cases were a little shorter than even what I hoped they would be. Nonetheless, their stories are still important to get out there. These stories are still unsolved. And... We're hoping by getting these stories out there that somebody somewhere is going to know something. I know it's scary to come forwards if you know anything, but people like Tony deserve for somebody to come forwards. Not just for the money, but for the fact that this was a seven-year-old, you guys, that was trick-or-treating. He was just trying to have a normal Halloween, eat some candy when he gets home, have a good time. And he was taken away from us way too soon. These kind of stories really make you wonder if the person who is behind the mask knocking on your door is thinking about breaking in there later and stealing the rest of your candy, or worse. There may be false or misleading information throughout this podcast. All facts have been researched to the best of my abilities but accidents do happen. If this is a story you are interested in knowing more about, I highly recommend doing your own research. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.